everyone. Welcome to The Catalyst, a platform I created to engage with changemakers who are catalyzing impactful moments within their communities, their careers, and their countries. So today I am so incredibly excited to have with me an ultimate champion of female empowerment and positive change, Anne Deveria Mills. Welcome to The Catalyst, Anne. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So honored that you are here. And the impetus for this interview beyond, you know, the incredible moments that you've contributed to throughout your life is your upcoming book, The Parley Effect. Can you tell us when it's coming out? It's out. It's out. We, hit, we, we, we launched a couple weeks ago and hit bestseller status in two days. And I've just received an amazingly positive response, I guess, because um, the, the whole idea of the book, which is about how we can be part of positive change in small ways by lifting each other um, met an unmet need for a lot of a lot of women and a lot of people um, in the world who are sort of frustrated by not being empowered to make change in their communities and in their nations. So we're sort of giving a new way for that to happen. Amazing. And I I love I love the book. And um and before we really dive deep into the book, I would love it if you could walk us through how you got to the point in your life where you felt ready to not only write a book, but a book as profound as The Parley Effect. You know, how, like, how did you begin? How did you start? <laughs> well, I didn't start writing a book. Um, what I started doing was recovering from a really low point in my life. I had been a, um, a single mom after getting out of a very difficult relationship raising my two daughters and living in New Jersey and running an advertising agency, actually a series of advertising agencies in New York. And I would get up at 4.45 in the morning and drive into the city and walk in my four inch heels to the gym and go to the gym and be a badass and work out and get to the office and run the company and get home and try to be the best mom I could to my daughters. And I did that for many years um, until um, right as my second daughter was about to go to college, um, a bout of cancer that I'd had a few years uh, earlier uh, was diagnosed as coming back, and I needed to have some surgery, sort of serious surgery, uh, to make sure that it didn't get the best of me. And when I went to my boss to say, I need to take uh, a couple weeks off, I'll have the surgery, I'll be back, I'll run the company. This was during the recession. He had a lot of pressure on him. And he said, eh, I'm going to have someone else run the company. And so at this moment in my life, I lost my job, my health, and my last kid was leaving college. And so I had spent 25 years of my life defining myself as, hi, I'm Ann, I'm the CEO, or hi, I'm Ann, I'm Lauren and Kira's mom, or, you know, hi, yeah, I'm with you at the gym at five in the morning, let's do this. And all of a sudden, I had none of those things. And I didn't really know, without those definitions, who I was. And so um, I ended up moving to San Francisco to be with the guy that I was dating at the time, and luckily, he's now my husband. Um, Congratulations. You, that part's really, really good. Um, but when I moved out here and thought, okay, I have time to have a friend over for a glass of wine, I realized I didn't have any friends here. And in fact, in the, the work world where I had worked with thousands of people um, over my career, when the going got tough and when I wasn't in power, nobody was there for me. 
very few people were there for me. I had a handful of friends and my um, family who lives in Seattle who were very supportive. But from a work standpoint, it had been so transactional based on power, based on hiring, based on promotions, based on favors, based on, you know, all sorts of things that, that are, I do something for you and you do something for me. When I didn't have anything to do for anybody, they were gone. And that made me realize that those are not the kinds of fulfilling relationships that I needed at that vulnerable time in my life. And maybe I needed as my life shifted from being about work and parenting to whatever it was next. So I didn't know what that would be. And I had to live in the very uncomfortable place after everything I knew and before I'd figured out what was next. And in that place, I just started to think about like, what were the things in my life that did feel supportive and inclusive and intimate and good? And, you know, I'm one of three daughters and I had two daughters and I went to Wellesley College with 2000 amazing women. Those things uh, felt fulfilling, felt safe, felt intimate, felt like places where there was real support, where we weren't sort of competing and tearing each other down. We were finding ways to, you know, study together or talk together or cry together or whatever that felt um, truthful. And so as an adult, I started to experiment and invite friends of friends over to my house. So I literally, um, literally had 12 women who I didn't know personally over to my house and they were super diverse range of women in terms of age, in terms of race, in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of interests. And we just started talking and the, you know, we, one of the things that I did was pull from a, another positive experience I had, which was being a fellow of the Aspen Institute where I spent a couple of years with other young leaders like myself and we would read read something from the classics or hear a piece of music or you know find uh, find a, a, a poem or something that wasn't really as relevant in the subject matter as it was in the um, having a common experience that then allowed us to have deeper conversations and I thought what if I can do that with women in my home what will happen and amazingly, the minute I started sharing my vulnerability and other people thought, oh, I have permission now to say something. And in 2012, before the Me Too movement was um, meaning what it was, we would have conversations and I would say, I feel like a failure or this, the fact that I'm always trying to be so perfect is actually bad for me and bad for everybody else around me. And, and I can never live up to my own expectations. And every time I would say some of these things, the women who I didn't know would say, oh my God, me too. And that me too then melt, meant, yes, I thought I was the only one in this room now or in my life or in my friend group or whatever that feels the way that I feel. And now I know I'm not alone. And so by having those conversations where we could express our truths, everybody left first feeling more personally empowered, and then they started feeling empowered to see and hear each other and lift each other up. And so we said, well, what do we do? Do we do this again? And everyone said, yeah, and I'm going to bring a friend. And so 12 turned into 50, turned into 
thousands. And we're now in um, almost, we're, we're launching next month in uh, Atlanta, Denver, and Seattle. We'll be in 12 cities around the world with thousands of women participating. And so that was kind of the birth of this crazy, unexpected, meaningful part of my life. That That is so incredible. And what I love about that is just how authentic it is. It's not something that you said, oh, this would be a perfect, you know, marketing thing. This would be so perfect as if it's my brand. It was really like something that came out of a really raw and personal moment in your life. And you just transitioned that into something that not only helped you, but helped everyone around you. So yeah, I think and that's and incredible. A business commentary, because I now live in San Francisco and I'm tied to Silicon Valley. And when you look at startups and people who are sort of trying to get things going, I, th I think it's true that people have an easier time getting anything started when it's first solving a problem that they personally identify with. And it doesn't have to be as vulnerable as, as what mine was. But, you know, I think when you start with an authentic truth, um, other people who have that same authentic truth um, immediately connect and follow. And, and that's certainly what happened with this social experiment. I find it incredible, just the power of human connection. And I actually read an article where the Parley House, which is essentially what, you know, these series of conversations turned into, was described as the salon reimagined. And what I loved about that comment was this idea of making the old new and the new old, right? That dichotomy. Yep. And but more than that, the, but more than the dichotomy, what I love is that at the very center of these conversations you were having with those phenomenal women and you know at the very center of your book the parley effect is this idea of connection and community and so i was wondering if you could expand on why those two things at the very heart of the conversations you had at the very heart of your book and maybe explain to those of us who don't know what the parley effect is and the importance of it in our everyday lives so one of the things that started happening is i would hear second or third hand stories of I'm, call, I'm using the terrible word things, things that happened as a result of Parlay House. So I would hear um, that a woman maybe got invited to something that was transformative to her or joined a, a movement that um, helped her feel more fulfilled and therefore helped more people. And I started thinking, huh, is there some sort of chain reaction going on? What is this all about? And it would be stories like, and I'll, I'll, t I'll give you a personal one. Um, I have been mentoring uh, this young woman from Cambodia who was super high performing in her class, but grew up after genocide to a family that lived in the country that was had not uh, been educated. Neither had her older sisters. And she wanted to be the first person to not only get a college degree, but get a degree from an American university and go back and become a leader in her country. And I thought, yes, this is exactly the kind of person I want to be supporting. So I joined an organization um, that helps women like that. And my job as part of a, her group of mentors was to help her pick the school and help her, you know, sort of get the scholarship. And she, you know, her her national exam scores were perfect, and she was top of her class. But the the TOEFL exam, which is English as a second language, was really badly administered because this was a country still sort of in chaos that didn't have and still doesn't have 
um, you know, a great system for supporting American standards or whatever it might be. And it was kind of badly proctored and the time wasn't well managed and she was getting stressed out and was not doing well enough to get the kind of scholarship that she wanted because of stress. And the week before at Parlay House, one of the women who was a stranger who showed up was a young woman who um, lived out in Oakland. She's 27. And her job was teaching mindfulness in inner city schools. So getting kids who had a lot of issues related to anger and fear and you know, frustration, getting them to learn how to channel those in productive and positive ways. And it sort of dawned on me, huh, I wonder if she could take a few minutes to just coach my mentee enough so that she can calm herself down and do well enough on the exam to pass. And sure enough, they got on the phone, two strangers in two different countries, and her coaching for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, and I wasn't on the call, but it was a short call, was enough to allow Liek, my mentee, to do well and get a full scholarship to Scripps College. And she's now a senior there and, you know, top of her class and doing great. But when she arrived, she sort of realized that the girl who had mentored her took her natural strengths and abilities, applied them easily to her, and and that and my Cambodian scholar's natural um, tendencies and abilities are in math. So when she arrived, what did she do? She started started tutoring math to other people for whom that didn't come so easily. So I started to see this cascade where one person did something and it helped another person and another person. And I thought, huh, is this pay it forward or what am I what am I seeing among people who don't really know each other? It's definitely something good. So I decided to conduct a research study, and I partnered with Dr. Serena Chen, who's a social scientist at Berkeley, and we designed a research study where we talked to 350 um, 18 to 44-year-old strangers in an online survey, and we grouped them into three buckets. The first bucket we called the givers, and we asked them, can you tell us a time where you did something small for someone else, but it had a meaningful effect on that person? Tell us that story. The second group of people that we reached out to were the witnesses, and we, I'm sorry, were the, the receivers. And those people, we said, tell us a story where someone did something small for you. They included you in something. They saw you and listened to you. They, you know, helped you in some small way that then had a profound effect on you. Tell us that story. And then we thought, oh, we don't want our research study to fail. So if no one can tell us that any, that they did anything nice or that anybody did anything kind for them, you know, did they at least witness something, hear of something, you know, were they an observer in some way? And, you know, as you might expect, the givers who could tell us those stories were people who probably go through life with, with a generous sense of self. And they could tell us great stories of how they um, reached out to someone, whether it was inviting somebody into a meeting where they wouldn't have been included, or they, um, you know, paid for someone's groceries who, was, who were a couple bucks short in the checkout line, or, you know, whatever it was. They were small actions that were obviously meaningful and they could see the effect. And you might not be surprised that the receivers not only could tell stories of how 
it was so wonderful to be seen or helped or mentored or coached or included, but that when someone did that for them, they all of a sudden recognized their own power to do that for others. So the receivers became givers too. And that was very meaningful, but it still felt to me like part of pay it forward on on a maybe more substantial level. But the most interesting part of our research was that third bucket of the people who didn't feel like they were part of any cascade of good, but could tell us stories of things that they saw. And when we started hearing their stories and then looking into the research, they would say nothing happened to me and then they would tell tell a story of seeing someone come out of 7-Eleven and buying an extra sandwich for a homeless person outside and seeing that homeless person walk across the street and share the sandwich. And the person who said they'd never done anything a few questions later in our, in our survey reported the next time they ca- came out of the grocery store, bringing a couple of extra things for someone else. So without even being aware of it, they had taken on and started replicating the behavior. And so what I call the parlay effect is this fan-like cascade that goes from uh, one person to two or three people to five people. And you know, it was proof to me that in a time when many of us feel we can't affect the kind of change in society that we want to affect because we're just one person and where do we start? The realization that by doing small things, both for people you know and for people you don't know, is very likely observed by others and replicated multiple times. And so it gives hope that we actually can be part of the change that we want to see in the world. That reminds me of the quote, be the change you want to see. Yeah. And and I love that you're trying to make a distinction between paying it forward and this cascade of just positive change. Because I think maybe the idea of paying it forward is like you feel the need to do it because you saw it. But as you said, those people that said, oh, no, I haven't really seen anything nice or done anything nice had just kind of like subconsciously mimicked yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think it's sort of when when you're doing it in the drive through at a fast food restaurant or at Starbucks or something, you know, it's kind of kitschy. It's kind of fun. It makes you feel good. And I discounted it. I thought, you know, that's kind of a throwaway. But when we read some of the responses in our research, we actually found that people felt even in just for a few minutes, like a part of a different community that was more meaningful to them. So, I, you know, that was my own bias going in was I was sort of throwing away those actions as frivolous. But in fact, it was just kind of a, a little spark of connection among strangers that also was positive. So I'm, I'm trying not to discount those. I mean, I think what, what we're talking about is more intentional, more sustainable, and more wide reaching. But you know, it's kind of just like a, a steroid version of some of the things that, you know, we've seen in in day-to-day lives. And there's honestly something to be said about those small day-to-day interactions and, you know, those frivolous moments of giving. And there's actually a chapter in your book that might really relate to this beautifully, which you titled Redefine Reciprocity. Yep. And you, you really noted throughout the book, the importance of moving beyond give to get networking to more authentic, but more importantly, empathetic relations. And, you know, for people that haven't read the book yet, how would you recommend that we move towards more compassionate connections in our lives? Yeah, you know, I think one of the problems in our society right now is, 
this assumption that all relationships should be reciprocal. And if they're not reciprocal, they're not good relationships. And I don't know how many times I or other people I know have lost touch with people because the measure of reciprocity made us too disappointed in them to see the other good things. So, you know, if you're a mom of young kids and uh, have a kid on a soccer team and one of the other moms is always having you drive their kid and never reciprocating, the fact that you two can talk about, you know, other things that are important and have other connections often gets thrown out the window because of resentment that some of your expectations for them being able to do the same thing in the same way that you do aren't met. And so I really think it's important to, um, to love and participate and give where your only measure is how you feel about your piece. Cause you really can't control and can't know what's going on in other people's lives. And, you know, there's always a line where you have to say, all right, this has now gone too far and I feel like I'm taking, being taken advantage of now this relationship falls on the below the line of something that I feel connected to. But I, I think, you know, as a society, we're, we're always judging wh whether what we're giving is being returned with what we're getting at an equal amount uh, instead of just at the end of the day, do I feel like I was the kind of person I wanted to be? Did I control everything in my power to control to, to be good in the world and be, you know, a thoughtful person? And if so, that's it. I can't, you know, I can't mandate how other people behave. I can only set an example and live up to my own standards. So that's what that that's what that chapter and that movement is about. And I think if if we're happy with ourselves and how we live in this world, um, then then that's kind of that's that's all we can control. We also are becoming role models for other people in that behavior in the same way that the parlay effect is is about um, thoughtful seeing of others. I think that there's a huge piece in our society where we're not thoughtful seers of ourselves and, and doing that in a, in a loving, forgiving way. It might be that you were not your best self one day. I'm never my best self every single day. And so on those days where you're not forgiving yourself in the same way that you would forgive someone you care about is a super important part of the whole puzzle of self-love and of being a good contributing member of society. And so I think, you know, as women who hold ourselves to such high standards of trying to be everything to everybody all the time and taking care of our, you know, partners and our work and our friends and our kids or whatever we've got and putting ourselves at the bottom of that hierarchy of care, um, stopping doing that and, and making, making our own self-love be, be a, a piece of that. Right. It's always said that you can't really show up in, for other people if you're not showing up for yourself. Yep. Um, and I think that's really important to remember. And what I love about your book is how you began it, actually. At the very beginning, I, I love it. I love it. I think it's amazing. At the very, very beginning, you said, nearly 50 years after coming into this world, I began my life for a second time. Not only is that poetic, you mm. know, and Shakespearean in nature, but I think it, it really showcases how much of a journey you've truly had. And the more I discover about you and the more I learn, the more 
inspired I am. Like, as we mentioned in the beginning, you are facing a major health crisis, a job loss, an emptiness, a real shattering of your identity. And Mm -hmm. I think when we attach ourselves to things that have a big impact on our lives, you know, where you go to school, where you work, you know, the roles in which you show up for constantly. And when that's taken away, it kind of leaves you with this existential crisis almost. And I mentioned this earlier, but what I love more than anything, what really inspired me to have you on the catalyst is that you created something to heal yourself in that moment that only helped you, but helped other people. And I think if you're able to help yourself and others, not indirectly, but directly and with purpose, that's nothing short of extraordinary. And so my question to you is, how do you advise other women and people, because this applies to everyone, to do what you did, right? To transform stressful moments within our own lives into moments of opportunity and growth. It's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I have a universal answer for that. But what I'll say is, um, for high achieving people, which you and I probably are, um, and many listeners probably are too, It's very scary to stop doing and take the time to feel and observe and process and kind of sit in less achieving space. So for 25 years, because of the life that I described, I was doing, doing, doing. I was being Wonder Woman. I was, you know, everything for everybody and super successful and not admitting my failures and not stopping to think and feel. And when all of this, you know, when this inflection point happened and everything that I was was gone, I didn't have a choice but to feel because I didn't know what to do next. I didn't know, should I just go back and run another ad agency? Should I, uh, you know, work for a nonprofit? I didn't know what would make me feel fulfilled because I'd never stopped to think and to feel. And so, you know, I think for those of us who are high achievers and want to succeed and have high standards for ourselves, it's a very scary place to, I call it the space in between after what was and before what will be. And, you know, it's just kind of a, it's strangely uh, quiet and not peaceful at the beginning because it's so confusing and you have no idea where to go. But for me, It was a time of transition where instead of just looking straight ahead about how I would do and achieve, I actually got to look around and ask questions. How about this? Or what about that thing that I abandoned a long time ago? Or what about this experience that still is meaningful to me from a a time past or that someone else has had that I have never had yet? And so what's really interesting about the women who are part of Parlay House and people who identify with my book is that they're in enough of a transition in their life, not like a catastrophic one as I was, but enough of a time where it's either a life stage transition or a career transition or, you know, a relationship transition, but enough of uncertainty that you're looking around to ask questions. And I, I was at a, um, a conference not too long ago where David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, was talking about the same subject. And I didn't even know he'd been studying it. But his data said that we are in a position, a, a place of transition. Um, 50% of people at any given time have a piece of their life in transition. So that says to me that about half of the people 
in this world can relate to the types of conversations and connections and growth opportunities and, and vulnerability and authenticity that I felt at any given time. And I think that's why we have thousands of women that participate and, you know, chapters that are growing all over the place because those people are not just looking straight ahead. They're looking behind them and at other people's experiences and to the side door instead of, you know, to the glass ceiling or, or whatever it is. And that that's a really important but scary place to be. And I would encourage anybody who isn't 100% focused and certain and driving at this very moment to stop and think about those vulnerable places, those meaningful experiences, those times that still sit with you disproportionately from some other aspect of your life that might not yet be really um, dug into and, and realized in a way that they have the potential to be. Right. And as you mentioned, it's when you get to that point where it's kind of silent, where it's uncomfortable, that transition moment, I think that's really where a lot of positive things come from. That's really where a lot of change comes out of. I know that for me, transitioning from high school to college, even though people told me it would be a transition, I was like, no, I'm fine. Like, this is nothing. I got this. No, it was, it was a transition. Yeah. It's hard because it seems like it's not going to be hard. You're moving from one place to another place and you you're continuing your studies like what's so hard about it but again but it was like exactly has changed the people exactly have, the expectations have changed the dynamics have changed what worked in one place doesn't necessarily work in the other place and that's all normal and you know what everybody around you is feeling the same way but it's kind of like what i said before they're just not admitting it because they think they're the only ones that feel that way they think everybody else has their act together and it's only them that doesn't when in fact if we could have these conversations about our fears and vulnerability and confusion and uncertainty and you know self-doubt and all those things that are normal to the human experience we would feel so much more connected and included as as communities and that's true in college for sure i remember i went from a a small uh private high school in seattle to wellesley college in boston and you know i had been kind of the pretty smart girl. And then I arrived at Wellesley and I was among 2000 pretty smart girls. And again, it was sort of an identity crisis and I wasn't the smartest person there and I wasn't the best student there. And trying to figure out who, you know, who I was in this new context um, was really overwhelming. It's, it's incredibly overwhelming. But I think that if you let yourself just be, as you mentioned, instead of just focusing on the doing, the doing, the achieving, if you just let yourself be, it's kind of fun. You know, it's like I spent all of my years as the pretty smart girl. I'm no longer the pretty smart girl. I have, two, like you said, so many pretty smart girls around me. Who am I now? You know, and I think I think that's kind of fun. Discovering yourself, discovering what you like, what you don't like. Because I think when we continue to say yes to the things we like and avoid the things we don't like, we'll just end up in the place where we want to be because we're only surrounded by things we love and care and appreciate. And what you were mentioning earlier about connection, I, in my research for this episode, I spent a lot of time on the website for the Parley Effect, which is gorgeous, by the way. I think everyone oh, should go look at it. You know, that is a young woman, not too much older than you, um, in LA named Nikki McDonald, who um, I found through my own daughter, who, who you know, is closer to your age <laughs> than mine. And, you know, this, this whole, the website and the book cover, and the communications and the social media um, are all driven by 
a different generation of women who have a beautiful aesthetic and feel the same relevance to what I'm talking about as I do as a 50, 50 something year old woman. Yeah. It, it's, I love that. it's, it's a theme of life. It's a theme of life. So it's, it's physical in nature, but on the, on the website there, I constantly saw the phrase start a cascade of connection, which I love. I love. And so I was wondering why did you choose the particular word cascade and how does that relate to your vision of connection? Well, I th I think the cascade to me what and and that's the little the the sort of circle that's on the cover of the book was about this uh, multiplier effect that seemed to happen when one person would have the courage to say something vulnerable and it would open the room at Parlay House and then the relationships afterwards to be multiplied and replicated in a way that almost felt unstoppable. You know, when you see a, a waterfall or a cascade, you can't, you can't sort of put your hand in there and stop it from happening. It, it, it takes on a life of its own. And certainly Parlay House and the Parlay Effect have also taken on uh, lives of their own. And I, you know, I love, I love that we're unstoppable by these really small actions. And one of the things I sort of want to emphasize because now Parlay House is a really big thing was I didn't set out to do a really big thing. The big thing took over like a cascade from me. I set out to heal myself and find meaning for myself and it turned out that when I was open about sharing what that was, it was other people's truths too. But to make change for other people, if you if you spend 15 minutes, like I, I said in that example, um, seeing someone else, even acknowledging someone, nodding to them across the room as if to say, hey, I see you, I'm with you, I, you know, I'm kind of feeling the way that you are, we're sharing something, is enough to make someone feel less alone. I mean, that little action, a nod, a glance, looking up from your cell phone while walking down the street and actually acknowledging a stranger or seeing some way that you might be able to help in a way that did not take a minute out of your purpose-filled day, but is probably extraordinarily helpful to the recipient um, is such a great thing because what it means is anybody is capable of beginning a cascade. And let me tell you um, sort of an interesting story related to that. I have a friend here in San Francisco. Um, her name is Mimi Silbert. And 50 years ago, she started an organization called Delancey Street. Delancey Street helps people who are returning from prison reintegrate into society. And these are people who have spent long periods of time in prison, have very difficult lives, have never had a sense of sort of control or inclusion in society. And she helps them develop a sense of self like I did later, later in life. And the way that she structures her organization is it's completely self-sustaining. So she has all these businesses like a restaurant and a delivery service and selling Christmas trees and all sorts of stuff. And when people come out of prison, they take the entry level job in whatever they're assigned to. And the person who's teaching them their job is the person who got out of prison just before them. So that person who's been out of prison and didn't think they had any power to do anything after a month or two is the teacher for the next person. So just by empowering someone 
to transfer one small bit of knowledge to the next person coming in, they start increasing their sense of self, their sense of confidence, and it creates a cascade of empowerment for people who have never had that before. And it's as small as teaching someone how the dishwasher works. And so I just love this idea that it's not just women and it's not just about um, you know, our Parlay House events. It's really saying that regardless of whether you don't have a dime to share, you still have your own strengths and your own um, self and, and a little bit of time to share with someone else. And that's enough. That's, that's, and our, our research showed that the, the cascade effects that people reported were not about money and were not about power. They were about humanity. And, and we all share that and can share that. Exactly. Exactly. And I think oftentimes, sometimes people think that they can't be charitable or do charity because you don't have money. But as you mentioned, it's not just about the material things you're able to share, your experience, your time. Yep. Which I, it's is everyone's most valuable asset. If you can share your time, that's more than enough, honestly. Exactly. And so, with the Parlay House, I was wondering, what is your vision? Like, like as you said, you didn't begin it with a, like, yeah, you know, this grand vision in mind. But I mean, as you said, it's become something much more than what it initially was. So, what, where do you see it going? Where would you like it to go? You know, it, it's interesting because I now it's now a bigger organization, and we have. Um, sort of a team that works on it. We've talked a lot about this. I happened to be at an event last weekend, for uh, last Monday for MLK Day um, before a Brooklyn Nets basketball game. And um, I'm a social justice activist, as is my husband. And so we were invited to this kind of lovely behind the scenes event with other people who care about social justice. And I was talking to a stranger, a man, telling him about Parlay House and about the book. And he had his daughter with him. And she's a sophomore in high school. And she said, wow, I wonder if what you're doing would work in my high school because everybody is so clicky and I feel so left out and there's no place to have authentic conversations because we're all judging and being judged. Do you think starting to have these positive communities would work in a high school? And can I try it in my high school? And that I was so thrilled to have her ask that question because I do think in places, you know, all of, look, all of our society is incredibly divided and clicky in whatever way, whether it's divided on race or wealth or, you know, whatever, whatever social status. And these are sort of opportunities to start to redefine those things in meaningful ways. So if I do that in, in high schools with the help of, you know, th this young woman and others. And if we do that in parts of the world, we're launching in Amman, Jordan um, next month, a place where women's access to information about their health, about their bodies, about opportunities is really quashed by a very traditional and patriarchal society. You know, if we're starting to enable women and people to be vulnerable, be heard, find ways to be more authentic and human in their experiences, um, I would be super happy to see this, the Parlay House events and this Parlay Effect movement sort of ripple through the world. Right. And I think, honestly, the more it grows, the more, I don't want to say radical, 
but I, I, I feel like it fits because essentially what we're doing is inviting people into our homes, right? Into our sanctuaries. Sometimes we're strangers. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes they're close friends who are coming with strangers. I think that's the radical thing in and of itself. And as that high schooler mentioned, it's like there's vulnerability in just inviting someone over and then further opening it up and these moments of, yes, me too, I I. I understand you. I I have felt that too. I think that's pretty radical. And for that to go, you know, global, I think especially in these times is impactful and necessary for connection. Me too. Me too. I'm so glad you agree. <laughs> Incredible. And so to end our interview on an even more positive note, I was wondering, could you share with us a favorite moment or story of the Parley effect that maybe was something that you witnessed at one of your salons or something that you heard from a dear friend? Um, oh, there's so many. Well, I'll tell you one, another one that, that sort of says anybody has the uh, potential to create change for others. Um, and I don't mean to make this all about me. It started with me, but it didn't end with me. So I was walking my dog in the local park and I found a, um, a purse on the ground. It was kind of like a, a free people style purse that was likely owned by somebody young. And I thought, and it was clean. It wasn't like it had been stolen and, you know, dragged through the mud. I picked it up and there was ID, which was not clear. It wasn't a driver's license. It was just sort of kind of school ID. I couldn't really tell that it had an address on it. And there was 40 bucks in it. And I thought, oh, if this was one of my daughters, they would feel so bad that they lost their purse and their money and their ID. So, <coughs> excuse me, I popped it in the, um, in the mail and I thought, I'm just going to surprise her. It was a her. Um, surprise her. And I put an extra $20 in it. I didn't say anything. I just put an extra $20 in it and I sent it to her. And I didn't really think about it when I put the return address. You know, I'm like a good, I, I studied how to do correct mail very well. And I put my return address on, um, but she, that meant she knew how to find me. And I got a note in the mail um, a few weeks later saying um, you know, I was on a field trip. It was my first time being in the big city of San Francisco. It was a girl from a small town. And she said, and I was mortified when I lost my purse, but then I was kind of elated when the other kids that I was with all pulled their extra money to pay for the things I was supposed to pay for, like going to the museum and getting dinner. And that made me feel really good about them. And then when the purse arrived, I couldn't believe that a stranger would do something like that for me. And so I opened up my purse and I all of a sudden thought, oh, I didn't remember if that's how much money I had, but it's more money than I thought I had. So when I went to school the next day, they were doing a fundraiser for an organization that um, helped kids who didn't have access to after school activities and they were matching your donation three to one. So I took the money that I had in my purse and gave it to this organization and it was tripled. So I thought, what a fabulous thing. This it, I did some research on this girl, um, and it turned out she was 12 years old at the time. And she had the kind of, um, you know, sense of values to say, I'm grateful. I messed up. Someone helped me. M multiple people helped me. I was grateful. Therefore, I did something. And I found a way to multiply it for people who aren't as lucky as I am. And, you know, that, that sort of said... Yes, a cascade can start even with a 12-year-old girl. Even with a 12-year-old. That's a beautiful yeah. story. Yeah. 
It's a beautiful story. And I love how there's just so many moments of connection in that story. Her schoolmates helping her get the things that she would have gone on her own but couldn't. You returning the purse, her being, oh my goodness, thank you so much. And then, you know, donating that money and then the organization itself tripling it, like yep. a cascade everywhere. Exactly. So many connections. Right. right. That's exactly the idea. But, you know, it happens all the time in the same park. Um, and then you might have read this in the book. When I walk my dog, there's this same guy every morning who's doing Tai Chi and he's standing at an area of the park where people who are riding their bikes to work and people who are walking their dogs walk by him. And to every single person, he says, hey, have a great day, you know, or some version of that. And you can see people looking forward to talking to him and smiling when they ride by. And does that mean they end up where they're going to school or to work or wherever? feeling better because a stranger sort of sees them, recognizes them, briefly connects with them? I think so. I don't know what the ripple effect is, but my guess is a mood is improved. The idea that just a greeting to a stranger can be meaningful, um, you know, is a, is a terrific tiny thing that anybody on earth can do. Right. And it's really those tiny moments. So I think that to really end this interview off, it's I think all of us should focus on those tiny moments, you know? I do too. Those tiny moments of positive change and such. But thank you so, so much for this beautiful oh. interview. Thank you I, for I sharing your wisdom. And can't wait to listen to more of what you're doing. Keep doing the great work. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening. Honestly, it's, it's really moments like this that I really enjoy and the reason why I started The Catalyst. I'm very grateful for everyone involved. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what this becomes. Catalyst Thank isn't you. that and then cascades. So let's do it exactly. together. Exactly. Okay. Exactly.